This is the Nearside Low Podcast, brought to you by Missouri Water Polo. For all highlights, scores, and updates, please visit www.mowaterpolo.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes, follow us on Twitter at Nearside Low, or Instagram at Nearside Low underscore podcast. Our guest for this evening is Coach Arthur Lambert. If you uh, look up Coach on the USA Water Polo website, he has a rich history of participating um, in water polo, coaching in water polo, and receiving um, a bunch of honors um, for the sport itself. Um, Coach Stanford men's team at one time, started out his career, though, coaching high school at Mountain View uh, in Mountain View, California at AWALT High School. And eventually took over, I guess, what we would call at one time the national team um, for the uh, United States. Uh, He's now retired. He lives in Idaho with his wife. Um, He dabbled in a little bit of volleyball coaching after his water polo days. Um, And Ray and I were really excited to be able to get him on the podcast. We touch on everything from uh, the historical context of water polo to the technique of water polo to just philosophical discussions of water polo. Um, We hope you enjoy the listen. And without further ado, Coach Arthur Lambert. So here we are in the Nearside Low podcast with uh, a special guest. Um, this is uh, Coach, and do you go by Art or Arthur? Art. Art. Coach Art Lambert. Now I got to tell all our, our all our uh, listeners uh, the way that I found out about Coach Art Lambert. We'll let him introduce himself in a little bit, but. Uh, I was talking to uh, St. Louis water polo, you know, historian and coach uh, Don Casey, as we all know. And, you know, I was picking Don's brain about offense and defense. And he said, you know, he's like, I still run the same offensive and defensive and six on five principles uh, that uh, this coach that I used to go to see at clinics and stuff named Art Lambert ran. And he goes, this was a long time ago, but, you know, everything that he said, you know, still holds true today. So, of course, what did I do? I went on Google, and I typed in Art Lambert, and I found out that you'd written a book titled The Technique of Water Polo back in the 60s or 70s. It's available on Amazon, uh, so I bought I bought a used version of it, and I read it, uh, and uh, my assistant coach and I, we call it the Bible right now, because even though it was written you know, in, I don't know, 67 or 70, a lot of what is said in there still holds true to the sport today, so I went on a little adventure and uh, found Coach on Google. Um, There was an article written about him, I think in the Idaho Falls, uh, by a sports writer uh, in 2015. I reached out to him. Uh, He was able to get me in contact with his wife, whose wife, Mary Jo, was obviously able to uh, get a hold of Art, and Coach Art Lambert sent me an email, and we've been kind of emailing and phone tagging the past couple weeks, and uh, so we finally were able to get a hold of you, and we're super ecstatic to just talk water polo with you. All right. Well, Coach, tell us a little bit about your your history. I know it's very rich, high school, college, national level, um, and we'll throw in questions here and there um, as we see fit. I'm not quite sure I know where to begin. I came out of the service. I played water polo and on the club level, and on I played at the Olympic Club. We won two national championships in 57 and 59. And then uh, I went in the service, 
And I played at San Jose State before I went to the service for four years. Then I went in the service, got out, and got a job at what was then Awald High School, which is now called Mountain View High School. What were you teaching there? I was teaching uh, history, world history, some physical education. We had a reunion about five years ago. I coached in high school from 61 to 66. We had a reunion. We had out of the 39 guys that were on that, all of those teams, 35 showed up for the reunion. Wow. wow. They came from all parts of the country. One from Missouri, I think, his name is Mark Larrabee. He was a uh, goalie for me. I was informed at that time, and I never knew it, and I had about two months before I'd thrown all the scorebooks away. Okay. And I said... And he said, you know what we accomplished, Coach? I said, no, I don't. He says, one of, the, one of the guys that went on to play in the Olympics for me said, we were undefeated against all high school competition for six straight years. And he said, are you kidding? He said, no. I said, he says, you didn't know it? I said, I had no idea. Reason being, we played a lot of freshman and JV teams in college and junior college, and we beat them. Right, okay, all right. Three or four of those players on that AWOL high school team went on to either play internationally or become members of the 68 and 72 Olympic teams. So post-coaching high school, did you go, uh, you went to Stanford and started coaching there? Was that your next stop? My next stop was junior college where I taught taught Russian history at night school and then PE during the day and I coached water polo and swimming at De Anza College. In 1972, I went to Stanford. Coached at Stanford from 72 to 76. I took over a moribund program (laughs) and we were, we won the Pac-10 title in 75 and the and 76. When did you take over at Stanford? And then you got you said you won the Pac-10 title in 75. You mentioned it was kind of a moribund program. What did you what did you do those first couple of years to to shake things up? <laughs> well, that in itself is another story, but the former coach was a former teammate of mine on the club okay. team, good, a good friend, and he wanted to focus just on okay. swimming. Right, so I came in and took over the water polo program, and he had done fairly well with it, but never, but, you know, never got up to where it was supposed okay. to be, or and where he thought okay. it could be. So I came in and took it over. We had two different coaching philosophies. So here comes hard charging Art Lambert. And I'm not putting in any bullshit. A couple of guys that were seniors quit. I said goodbye. And then uh, a couple of the juniors on the team at the time were, what, what's this all about? Uh, this is not the way we're used. I said, hey, either you're on or out. And if you're out, don't let the door hit you in the ass on the way out. The 76 national team, I think we had one, two, five of them made the one of the either the 80 Olympic team or the 84 Olympic team. Okay, so how long did you coach at Stanford then? I coached at Stanford until 76, and then the athletic director called me in and said, look, what else do you have to do in water polo? And I said, why are you asking, Joe? And he said, well, you've coached the men's volleyball team for two years in the winter. Interested in coaching the women's program. We're starting the women's program. I played volleyball on the beach a lot, but I hadn't played a six-man. And I never coached women. I had no right. idea. So, so you coached 
high school water polo, junior college water polo. You coach Stanford's men's water polo program. You coach Stanford women's volleyball program. And then did you coach the, I, I don't know, was it called the, was it the national water polo team at the time? Did you coach the Olympic team or the national team at one point? I was a head coach in 68 in Mexico, Mexico City. So tell us about that team. Well, it was the first time we'd ever fielded a national team, per se. Essentially, it was comprised of people from Southern California and Northern California. In previous years, they took the winning team and the nationals, AU nationals, took those seven and the coach, and then you could take four alternates, making 11. And that was up to the coaches to pick the other four. And you had alternates after that. I was an alternate in 60 and 64. Then in 72, we, we won six national AU titles between 65 and 72. All of our guys made national teams of one kind, one form or another. I was the coach of the 67 Pan Am Games team. We won a gold medal in Winnipeg. As a result of that, the committee wanted to go to a... Uh, to a national team concept, we'd like you to be the coach. So hence, I became the coach. We trained at the Air Force Academy for two weeks before to get acclimated before we went down to Mexico City. I was the assistant coach of the 72 team. We won the bronze medal with, uh, I think, five or six of our guys on that team started. So so you, you said in 68 you were involved with the national team? I, I was a I was a national team coach, the Olympic coach. Okay. So in 68, there were some teams from St. Louis that were involved, right? Or some athletes that were trying to make the team then? I don't think we had any from St. Louis, to be honest with you, Ray. Okay. Uh, I, I knew Casey. I knew the name Casey. I knew Ralph Erickson. It was in Illinois at the time, and there were some players that played for this. It was the St. Louis Athletic Club. Okay, yeah, yeah. And but I don't know if they ever came or made any of the national teams. Okay. Okay, so let's. Uh, well, I guess we'll pivot here a little bit. And high school season in St. Louis just started. Uh, Coach, uh, in my conversation with you last Sunday, you obviously have a wealth of knowledge. Uh, give us some advice or pointers that you give to to coaches something that you did or thought about a lot at the beginning of of the season, whether it was at the high school level, at Stanford, at the national level? First of all, I would focus on quickness, who's quick and who is fast. There's a difference between the two. Let me give you an example. You can take a guy, and I have one, who was back then was pretty fast, 49 seconds for the 100 yard freestyle. That's pretty fast. This guy's (laughs) fast, but he wasn't quick. So for him to get going, he had to go half the pool before he get up to full tilt. You know, how fast are you for 10 yards? So I'm looking for people that can do that. So is that something that you would teach or that you just looked for in the athlete? Well, I used to look coming out of the, uh, the junior highs, I'd look to find kids coming out in 6th, 7th, and 8th grade who were playing and see if I could determine quickness. When I played guys... The ball, it was a game that's like it is today. You throw the ball into two meters and let the guy try everybody, you know, take pictures and, you know, videos and stuff and watch the score out of there. And they throw the ball out and throw it back in and get a penalty throw or something. 
that's you're saying the style of play today is like that, like it was when you were when you were playing. What do you think about that? I hated it. That's why we that's why we did so much and, winning it. And so, what did you team. do differently with your teams that allowed you guys to win? Well, the two meter man was basically a, a, a passing man. We would rub off, run picks, drive by him. I would rotate a lot of my two meter men, whoever happened to be in there. Passing was preeminent. You had to be able to pass the ball. When I say pass, I mean put the ball so it's not a face off. Okay, right. Got to be a pass. And you got the key thing is you got to know what you're going to do with the ball before you get it. I'm writing that one. I'm on the board on tomorrow at practice, coach. <laughs> I mean, if you don't know what the hell you, if you have to get the ball and then turn around and look to see what the hell's going on, you've lost it. Did you get good athletes, or is that something that you like? You could practice. You talk a lot about athletic intelligence and how you can be a super smart kid in the classroom, but that doesn't mean that you have athletic intelligence. That's very, very true. Still is to this day. Well, so is that? Were you able to cultivate athletic intelligence, or? Well, some have it. Uh, just it's sort of a, you know it's a gene, I guess, if you want to go that far with it. And others can be taught it. There's a difference between being an automaton and discipline. For example, if you take the ball out and you go down one side of the pool all the time, can't score extra man until everybody's in position, that is, I'm trying to think of the term, not automaton, anyway. But I think you know what it means. It's, it's, it's predictable. I always had kids, that when the ball was shot, they were heading down on their backs looking for the ball from the goalie because they know what they want to do with the ball. And I had one boy that was really excellent at it, played on the 67 Pan Am team. He'd see the, he'd see the shot wherever he was. He'd take off, be on his back. He met, immediately the goalie would take it and give him the ball right away, whether it was five yards down the pool or four. Couldn't throw the ball over halfway then. And the play evolved from there. Now... Yeah, getting back to this discipline, discipline means you're playing within the confines. And I realize this is a philosophical thing, but it's very, very important. I didn't describe it to them that way. But as you're playing within this picture frame, so to speak, you can do all the things that, I, that they've been taught to do, and you don't go beyond that. You don't go outside the frame. That's discipline. Otherwise, you know, if you're predictable, like the ball always goes out this side, always goes down this side. We had teams that did that all the time. And my thing was always outside in. Ball goes over this way, outside in the other side. Outside in, outside in, outside. So you're changing the positioning of the goalie and the field players all the time. So I coach discipline. You could do whatever you want within the framework of what we've talked about. In other words, I'm giving them the opportunity to play. If I see an opening, I'll take it. If I see a player a, a player that's got a good position, I'll give him the ball. And there's some coaches that want everybody to be in position before you can execute 6 on 5. You're going down the, down the pool and you've got 3 on 2, 4 on 3, or 5 on 4. You execute it. You don't wait till everybody gets set up. You lose your advantage then. We had what we called rotation. If I have three on two, I want three people coming down the pool, hopefully spread out enough so that one 
defensive player can't take two. And if the ball's on the right side, let's say, coming around, you get down there, then I expect him to come in towards the goal, get in the middle of the goal perfectly, and the other people that were ahead of him pull off and go behind him and come around the other side and call rotation. Now you got the goalie. The idea is not to shoot the ball, necessarily, but to move the goalie. All right. So and the other thing is, is like defensively, people used to say, how do you get so many free men? Well, it's simple, really. And that's why we spent so many hours on a counterattack, always. Counter, counter, counter. It became second nature. So you, t- you talked a little bit about the importance of a goalie. Like, why, why was the goalie so important to you? And what, what did you look for when you were trying to pick, pick a goalie? Well, I look for quickness, length, and legs. Goalies never worked out with the, with the team, except in scrimmage or drills. Okay. Yeah, when we were conditioning and we were doing passing drills, the goalies were always in a, at the other end of the pool working. And I take 10-pound weights that you use in scuba diving. I used to be a diver all the time, so I took the, the weight belts into practice, and I loaded them up. They'd go across the pool like this, their hands on top of their heads, egg beating, back and forth. I had an assistant coach, actually, well, I had quite a few assistant coaches, but they always took the goalies for the first half hour or 45 minutes of practice. All they did was work them from side to side or going across the pool with their hands on top of their heads, egg beating. And once they did that, then we start the drills. I'd put a player over on the left post, a player on the right poster, or a yard on either side of that, pass the ball back and forth there, the goalies move, trying to block the ball. After a while, the goalies began to anticipate and see that good goalies and great goalies have a hell of a feel for body language. For example, if now the way they shoot penalty throws, my guy go out and get a cup of coffee after the whistle blows before they let the ball go where I'm saying. We had to have the ball up and that was it. So if the shoulders were facing the goalie like I am parallel, I would ninety percent of the time would go to the left. Right like this, perpendicular, I'd be going to the right. Huh. Now now though, you know, you might be likely to go back and turn uh, Where's the penalty throw line now? Five meters or four? When I played, it was four, and then, I mean, obviously I've coached long enough. We were at the five meter. Yeah, well, and I, you know, that's kind of that catch-22. I've had some athletes start with the ball in the water and kind of do a wind-up, but I I feel like my best five-meter shooters have started with the ball in the air, and they have such a a quick reaction that uh, even if they don't get it exactly where they Still want, work. the goalies just they just aren't able to pick it up quick enough. It's yeah. Still good, so, huh? hey, that's the way that's the way I teach it. So, well, you might want to tell your goalies this: if they're open, ninety okay. percent time the ball's going to the left. I mean, you know, the odds are not good, not in your favor yeah, anyway. And if you're if you're perfect, if your shoulders are perpendicular, the goalie's going to go to the right. Uh, you wrote you uh, you wrote extensively about passing lane defense, and that's something that uh, Ray and I we coach club together, and that's kind of one of our bread and butters. 
uh, especially in St. Louis, we run a really hard passing lane, um, and we find that uh, I think it surprises some teams that aren't from St. Louis because um, they're not used to that. Um, so obviously, I, it sounds like from your book you found that to be a successful style of defense. I was really big on weak side, and I didn't, I didn't, we didn't play conservative defense on the weak side. That is to say, we didn't put the defensive player between the goalie and the offensive player. We played them on the side, not with your back to the offensive player, but not with your with your back to the passer either. Right. You're sort of looking down the field where you're going to go. Right. And in fact, you're probably a little bit open. But you're at worst, you are even with that guy on the weak side. Right. You're playing him even. You're not behind him. At worst, you're even. And we had a couple of guys. I don't know if you remember a guy by the name of Gary Shearer. No, well, you, you mentioned to him. Sure. So I was talking about size. Was he the guy you mentioned that was like 5'7", five, 5'8"? Five, okay. Right. But he was Greatest a stud. Greatest ever had. He, and, he was all he was world, all but he played. He played with right. his head. He and another guy, Jimmy Ferguson, both of were on both of our Olympic teams when I coached. Both of them were really smart, very savvy, and they watched some the ball on one side of the on one side one side of the pool, and he knew they they almost read. They could tell if the guy was even looking over here, so they cheat even more and more and more. And of course, the guy either lose the ball or throw it to the goalie or shoot at the goalie. They bring it down, and of course, our guys were long gone. So what happened was when you're doing that, you really disrupt the team's offense because they're afraid to commit. You know, they don't want everybody down there. It's only one or two guys. That makes it easy. You're countering so much that, like, they don't want to bring guys to offense because they just keep getting burned at the other end. Right, and they don't understand. I used to have coaches come to me at, at coaches' meetings and clinics and stuff and say, how do your guys get so free? I said, well, I just anticipate well. I let it go with that. I didn't go into positioning or anything. So when, when you were a high school coach, what was one of the things you found it hardest to teach your, teach your players? Well, I, I started my career at Awold High School, and I was in a suburban community. So the first thing I had to teach kids was how to compete. Compete, okay. Compete. Once we got over that hurdle, then we began to All the guys, I don't know how to say this to you, but all the guys that played for me loved playing the way we played because they were students of the game. It wasn't just one muscle, you know, I'm going to beat you. Like when we used to play the Russians, very okay. physical. But we beat the Russians because we used our brains. I mean, we played hard. We were physical, but we were also savvy. And we're looking for weaknesses. But it's different than just throwing the ball into two meters and videotaping. So when you're talking about teaching them to compete, was that something you did through drills, through them just playing more? or what? How, how did you teach that? Drills. The only thing we did, Ray and in conditioning was head up butterfly with a okay. flutter kick and they hated it we'd start every practice that way in fact i'd come out after about four or five days all right i want you guys to realize this uh, charlie called me on the phone last night and he gave me another idea on conditioning so we're going to change it a little bit it's like this on the side of the pool you know and i said uh, all right so let's do uh, 18 head up butterfly oh shit yeah <laughs> off we go the rest of it was just all drills were such that we conditioned with our drills. So so competing was more like mental toughness is what you were trying to teach? Oh, yeah. Okay. Absolutely. 
it, it, I guess as the season went along, was it just continuation of that, or what? I mean, what what were you what were you trying to do? I mean, just getting your teams ready for these various games. Well, you you install fundamentals: passing, shooting, defense, offense. Okay. As you get better, all you're doing with this is refining those skills, making them better and better and better. You know, there's no secrets in any athletic endeavor. It's just a refining of fundamental skills. So it sounds like it's been a little bit since you were actually coaching at water polo. What's like? What's one thing when you watch the game today that you think that people should be doing differently, or that surprises you? I'll tell you something. I did my last year at Stanford, and I was going to put it into effect, but I I didn't have time to do it. We tried it in practice three or four times. A couple of my players who later play on the Olympic team and said, Coach, that's unbelievable. Why don't we do it? I said, we haven't practiced enough to do it. This is year one of the NC2As in 76. But what it was, was what's the worst shot, Charlie and Ray, you can take in water polo? I'd say it's a forehand shot. Where are your odds the worst? I'd say, like, at the wall, like two or so. So like far sure, the, the, the right-handed player, you want to force him to his right side. Okay, so the goal, is, the goal is here, and if you're the player, the worst shot for you right-handed, the worst shot is this one. The goalie has the advantage right. if he's any player. So I told the guy, I said, what we don't want is the pass going over our head over here where I have the whole goal to shoot at. Right, so what we said, I want every player to push their guy Ink beater and whatever to the right side. Huh? <laughs> well, hell, after we put that into effect for the first team against the second team, the score was 15 to nothing. And Doris, Chris Doris, my goalie, was, who was later in Olympia, was saying, Hey, coach, this is like taking candy from a baby. They'd shoot it over here. And, and of course, the weak side would be on the other side, taking off. Was uh, so, so you can't play defense one on one. You just got to get the so that your goalie and your field players understand they're in sync with one another. I'm going to force the guy over here. That's the shot you're going to get. Admitted in the other game, team sports. So you mentioned uh, gotcha. you mentioned coaching, and we we chatted about this. What what makes a good coach? What do you uh, you mentioned a book and. You talked about coaches as teachers and stuff, so touch on that a little bit. Great teachers, great coaches are great teachers. Why is it that 20% of the coaches do 80% of the wedding? I don't care if they recruit better or whatever. How does a guy like Belichick and the Patriots stay on top for so long in the age of free agency? They continue to stay on top. Why? Because the guys, he, he, he himself is a teacher and so are his assistants. I think to be a great teacher, to be a great coach, you have to have a passion for what you're doing. It can't be just for the monetary or, you know, make 3000 bucks with an adjunct coach, like one of the guys I used to compete against. Him. When I came back to Sandpoint after Notre Dame, their volleyball program had fallen on tough times, so we had to, so we had to get the program back going, which I did for a couple of years. <laughs> and this one guy who won the state championship the year before, he was doing it so that he could buy an RV. How can you do that? That's ridiculous. You do it because you love it and you have a passion for it. I think that passion 
has to be conveyed to your to your players. So do you think you being do you think you being a high school teacher like helped you become a better coach? Absolutely, without question. In fact, when I got out of the service, I was working on my master's degree at San Jose State. The coach that I had was retiring at that point, and somebody said, "Why don't you apply for the job?" So I did, and one of my former teammates at San Jose State that was a year ahead of me also applied amongst a couple others. Well, I had coached the freshman team and done very well, and I thought, geez, they got a real chance to do this here. Came time, and I was not selected. I, I was sort of bummed out about it. until I, So I got a job in high school at AWOL, and I thanked God for the director of athletics. In fact, I went back and thanked him afterwards saying, you know, Dr. Engel, you did me a great service. He said, I knew I would. Because in high school, you have to learn you only take what you get. You can't go out and recruit anybody. You're in your district, they come and they play. And you have guys that swim the 101 60 seconds. You got guys that swim the 150 seconds. You got motor morons. You got gifted athletes. Anyway, you got everybody. You got to sort yeah. through them. But you got to learn to teach. You got to learn to coach them. And that's why I thank God that I was in high school for those years. As a coach, um, usually when we have guests on, we always like to talk about, uh, like, a, as a coach, I always have, like, favorite memories of mine, like during games or tournaments or something that, you know, I remember a, a goal or something that some athlete did. Um, what was, you, do you, I mean, you obviously have a rich history in water polo. What was a event or memory that you were like, <laughs> That you still like when you see your old buddies, you still you know BS about and laugh and and go. Well, remember when? You talking about you talking about a player? Or well, uh, well, I mean you could do one of each. <laughs> I'd have to sit down and, and, oh, and prioritize all of those. I can tell you as a coach because the guys never let me forget it. Coaching in high school, I was so pissed off one time and I. I and I inadvertently, we played in a shallow, deep pool, and I had a flag up, you know, on the stick. We had a blue flag and a white flag on the stick. And I banged the thing on the side of the lifeguard stand, started to step around and slipped and went in the water. And I was in about three feet or four feet of water. So, so <laughs> being equal to the task, the kids were just like this. I walked all the way over to the two-meter man, and I waited over, and I said, now, listen, this is what I went... And don't you forget it. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> okay. and they, re they remind me of that every time I'm around them. As a player, oh, my word. I guess we were playing in the national championships in 59 or 58, 57, down at the Coliseum Pool in Los Angeles, 50-meter, 30-meter course. And in those days, when you got kicked out, you couldn't come back in until a goal was scored. So we're down. It's 2-2. Two to two. There's three of us on one side and three on the other trying to play in a 30-meter course. Everybody's out waiting for a score, and we were exhausted, up and down, up and down. Just three, six guys, three on three, playing 30 meters. Finally, the goaltender, Bob Horn, he was in the goal. He was a very good goalie. He said, to hell with this, so he just stepped out of the goal. Unless you've played the sport and played three on three in 30 meters, you have really lived. Which brings to mind something else I used to do an awful lot of. We put, you know, obviously the game is seven on seven, six on six field players, right? right? 
I used to bring the goals in 20 meters or across a shallow deep pool. Our pool was 60 feet wide. I played play four on four. That's where you really learn it. It's very fast, very quick. You spend okay. a lot of time playing four on four. In fact, a lot of guys will tell you that's where we learned the game, Coach. So when you when you were trying to develop drills to teach a certain skill, like how did how did you do that? Did you I mean did you did you do that by watching other coaches or learning from other coaches? Great question, Ray. And I have one answer. I never used anybody else's drills. I would go home at night after I'd prep for my history class, and I would go home at night. By the way, I did this all for three hundred twenty bucks a month until I died. Until I died and went to heaven. And I was putting in 12-hour days easy. I had a prep period and all of that. And I would so what I would do is I would go home right after practice, before dinner, I'd have a beer before dinner. And I'd develop drills that I knew that we needed to work on as a result of our problem. And sometimes they were the same drills, the ones I developed. If they worked, we'd use them. If I didn't work, if I thought, uh-uh. If the drill is too good, too advanced, we'll have some step and fetch it that can't do it. So it ruins the drill. So you gotta adjust. I was never out of the John Wooden school where I spent five minutes on this and I spent ten minutes on that. If we didn't get something the way I wanted it done, we could spend the whole day in practice. And I've done that. So I get what I want. But so but you have to design the drills to fit your team. In other words, where are we weak? Are we weak, are we weak on getting the ball out of the goal and counterattack? So I developed a drill <clears throat> so that the weak side guy would be available for the ball right away as soon as the goalie got it. Boom, over. You need to develop a drill for it. If it works, good. You keep doing it until you get it done. You hit it maybe four or five times that week. Once that's a, sort of become ingrained, you might develop another drill for some other something else. That's essentially what I do. I develop my own drills. And uh, so I, I know we're gonna tr- like to share some of this with some athletes as well. Like, what are some things as an athlete like you always tried to impress on your players if they wanted to get better? Like, what what did you tell them? Like, was the pathway to becoming a better player? Attitude, the desire to get better. See, I'm coming. I'm coming from this from a situation really where I was. I had to learn to play with my mind. I was six one and 165 pounds. Playing against guys who were six six and 240, especially when we had to play the Yugoslavians, they're huge. Well, I, I'm not going to outmuscle anybody. I got to learn to use my brain to play. And everybody has tendencies, weaknesses things that they're going to do. And you play enough, where you, how many times do you play a team a year? At least twice, huh? So you should be fairly familiar with these teams and what they like to do. When we won the NC2As in 76, our goalie, Doris, had blocked a couple of penalty throws. was a hell of a goalie. Tough to get by him. And the players knew that, so they could take liberties on defense. One of the liberties we took was allowing this one kid that we knew couldn't couldn't throw it in the ocean on six on five. He'd come in, he was afraid to shoot, and he'd back off. And of course, they, you know, in the championship game, the coach was screaming, "Shoot the damn ball! Shoot it!" <laughs> he'd come in, 
and he'd back off. Why? That's because we knew that he had no confidence as a shooter. So these are things that I think, and I had to, I think that's what helped me in my coaching career. I wasn't able to, I mean, I was strong, but I wasn't that big and that strong. I wasn't able to overpower guys. That's why Shear, the guy I was telling you about, Charlie, was so good because he learned to play with his mind. I, I don't. I, I think you have to put this all together. What we've talked about tonight, put it all together, understand the philosophy from which I'm. I hated playing, and I played my first year of water polo. I played as a senior in high school. I played four years in college, and all I did was watch these guys throw the ball in the hole. You know, I, I wasn't bigger, strong enough to muscle my way around in the line they do now. So I said, no, I said, there's got to be a better way. So I started playing a certain way, and I developed my own feelings about this. So that when we did play with a team that had a hole man, I'll never forget it. One of my very dearest friends I was coaching against, he was a player also, but he was a two-meter man, so he had his two-meter man. Well... When we started beating all these high schools up, they all played these two-meter men. Well, what happens when you take the two-meter man out of two meters and make them go all the way down the pool and play defense? What happens? After a, while, after a while, he doesn't come back, does he? Yeah. So we had players that we played against. These were top teams in California. They would turn around and pass the ball in the two meters. The guy wasn't there yet. <laughs> Are you coming back? Yeah. Oh, hell, by the fourth quarter, it was ours. Right. And most two-meter men don't swim well. The first rule of thumb was, let's get him out of there every time. And the guys just rejoiced, and they loved it. Who's got him? Who's going to take him out of there? Good. I got him. I'll take him out. Okay. Two-meter man, always. Even when we played in, in 72, the Hungarians had a guy by the name of Sibush, who was about 6'8 and about... 245. He'd sit at two meters. The tallest guy we had was see, 6'1, 6'2, maybe 180, 185, 190. They're not going to hold him. So the thing we did was every time we took him out, down he'd go, down he'd go. Pretty soon he's grabbing, you're out. And of course, internationally, we, we had him out seven times, but he only got kicked out twice. So, coach, that wraps up uh, most of the interview here. Anytime I can help you, let me know. I'd love to do it. And that concludes our podcast number three with Coach Art Lambert. We hope you enjoyed. I'm headed on spring break, so until next time.